Welcome to Literary Fiction on NTS. I'm Carrie Plitt, here as always with my co-host Octavia Bright. Hi, Octavia. Hi, Carrie. How are you doing this morning? I'm great, darling. How are you? Popped up on caffeine as usual. Yay. Having a good time. <laughs> also having a good time because I'm here recording the show with you. That's always the best thing in my week. Month. Yes. I wish it was we. Well, we see each other more than that. Yeah, that's We're true. real friends. We are. For FYI. all of our concerned <laughs> listeners. <laughs> so on this month's show, we're talking about the historical novel from Ivanhoe to Wolf Hall. What do we look for in art about the past? Do historical novels have to be true to history? I, for one, am very excited to tackle these questions, especially because we have a wonderful author guest in today to help us do so. Her name is Essie Dugin, and she's here to talk about her third novel, Washington Black, which was shortlisted this year for the Man Booker Prize. And we were actually at the party. We're very involved in the literary <laughs> scene. <laughs> We were at a party. Yeah, we were at a party. We were not at the party. No, we weren't. I, yeah, sorry. I don't know why I'm bragging about this. Anyway, coffee, we're really coffee. we're really looking forward to having us on. Um, do you want to tell us a little more about her and about Washington Black as well? I really, really do. Um, Essie Dugan lives in Victoria, British Columbia in Canada. She is the author of The Second Life of Samuel Tyne and Half-Blood Blues, which won the Scotiabank Giller Prize and was a finalist for the Man Booker Prize, the Governor General's Literary Award and the Rogers Writers Trust Prize and the Orange Prize. Many <laughs> prizes. I should have read that sentence properly before. Um, her latest novel, Washington Black, is the story of George Washington Black, a gifted artist born a slave on a plantation in 1830s Bermuda, and the fantastic and surprising course of his life, which takes him from the Arctic to London to the deserts of Morocco. It's a really fabulous tale. Yeah, it's been a wonderful companion to me this yeah. last week, and I really can't wait to talk to her about it. Yeah, me too. I've been thrilled to read it. So today we'll talk to Essie about Washington Black, more generally about historical fiction, and finally we will be giving our book recommendations. So if you're in the mood for the remembrance of things past, stay right here with us for the next hour on Literary Friction. Essie, thank you so much for coming on Literary Friction, and we've asked you to start with a reading. Do you want to set it up for us, please? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I will be reading, I guess, from the second chapter which uh, is essentially a portrait of Washington's relationship with the woman on the, a fellow slave on the plantation who acts as his protector and is kind of a mother figure for him. Um, so I'll just start. All my childhood, I'd had no one, only Big Kit, as she was known in the cane. I loved her and I feared her. I was around five years old when I angered the quarters woman and was sent to live in the brutal hut below the dead palm tree, Kit's hut. On my first evening there, my supper was stolen and my wooden bowl cracked. I was struck hard on the side of my head by a man I did not know, so that I staggered and could not hear. Two little girls spat on me. Their ancient grandmother held me down with her talons biting into my arms and cut my handmade sandals from my feet for the leather. That was when I first heard Big Kit's voice. Not this one, she said softly. That was all. But then some monstrous charge of dark energy, huge and inexorable as a breaker, poured towards us and picked the old woman up by the hair as though she were a boneless scrap of rag, tossing her aside. I stared, terrified. 
Big Kit just glared down at me with her orange eyes, as if disgusted, and then returned to her stool in the dark corner. But in the morning, I found her squatting beside me in the pale light. She offered her bowl of mash, traced the lines in my palm. You will have a great big life, child, she murmured. Life of many rivers. And then she spat in my hand and closed my fist so that the spit ran between my knuckles. That is first river, right there, she said, starting to laugh. I adored her. She towered over everyone, huge, fierce. Because of her size, and because she was a saltwater, a witch in old Dahomey before being taken, she was feared. She would sow curses into the dirt beds under the huts. Rooks would be found eviscerated and hanging in doorways. For three weeks, she forcibly took food from a strong smith's apprentice each morning and night, and she ate it in front of him, scooping with her fingers from his bowl until some understanding was reached between them. Beautiful. Thank you so much. We are both smiling to ourselves just listening to your language. And I would say that's one of the real delights of reading this book is just on a sentence by sentence level, the way you describe things is so revelatory and beautiful. So thank you. Oh, thank you. Um, so I want to start by asking you about George Washington Black, who is the narrator of this novel and, and really its protagonist. Um, and he's known as Wash as well. Uh, how did he come to you? What, why did his story seem to be the one that you wanted to tell? Yeah, so I had initially set out to write a book about the Tichborne claimant um, affair, which was, uh, just to say very briefly what it was about, it was a, uh, like a co-celebre in 1860s and 1870s England, and it uh, was a series of trials that just went on and on. I mean, there was the it's just was crazy, like over 20 years of litigation. Uh, but one of the main witnesses for the defense uh, in a few of those trials was a man called Andrew Bogle. And he was an ex-slave who had been stolen off a plantation in uh, the Caribbean by a member of the Tichborne household, uh, Sir Edward Tichborne. And uh, he was brought to work in the household. He was there for about 40 years. He had this whole other life in England before retiring to Sydney, Australia. And I was, as I was sitting down to write the Tichborne story, I realized I was much more interested in uh, the psychology of somebody who was like Bogle, but, you know, who wasn't Bogle himself, um, who had been wrenched out of one very brutal and, um, and predetermined life because he would have assumed that he would um, have lived out his entire life in you know as a slave in the fields and then probably be killed um, you know have a very unnatural ending to his life so for him to be taken out of that very abruptly and suddenly and then transported into a world that was so hugely different from everything that he had known um, you know but he would still be carrying all of the the trauma and the scars of that first life that was what was interested me or interesting to me. And how did you arrive at the the name George Washington oh. Black and all that that might signify? Yeah, that um, it just is one of those things that comes to you as a writer. Uh, but what I really thought was fitting about it was the um, the idea that um, you know this was the founding father of the Great Republic of America, 
uh, which had broken away from the English. And, and uh, you know, he would have been, obviously, George Washington was a, a great and significant figure and would have been seen as an admirable man, uh, even by the English, who had to admire that kind of, um, you know, that kind of grit, I guess, and gumption and ingenuity. Uh, and so by giving the slave his name, um, you know, it's really a, a kind of mockery. It's a kind of um, debasement. It's this is obviously a you know a, a being who's not going to amount to anything, and so by by giving him the, the name of a, this great heroic figure, uh, it's you know it, it's really the the beginning, I guess, of his um, extinguishing him in the world. Like he's he's not going to amount to anything, um, and I think you saw this with a lot of slave names, P- you know, people being named after. Roman senators and, and emperors and and uh, or names that were just completely debasing. Like uh, I'm trying to think of some of the ones that I like. Ruddy Christmas, I think oh, was, God. you know, and and you know Bob the Thief. Like d- these kinds of very debasing names. Yeah, and the way that violence in these narratives is physical, but it's and structural, but it's also linguistic, isn't it? It's. Yeah. Yeah, and it's a kind of psychological violence that you can bring to somebody if you can cut them down right at the right at the root, right at the the stage of naming, um, to crush somebody, um, crush their soul through through uh, psychological warfare. This pretty much ensures that you know they're not going to to rise up and rebel. Um, I think it's just as uh, just as brutal a thing as any kind of physical uh, warfare on the body. That was one of the things that I really appreciated about this novel. I don't know if that's quite the right word, was how you depicted not only the the sort of like physical brutality of slavery, but also the psychological brutality of slavery and Mm -hmm. how part of Wash's journey in this book is to try to find a way out of like the prison of his mind that that slavery affects on him. and I wonder if you felt at all daunted by that task because slavery is such a it's such a big and important and brutal part of history. Yes, I think if I had understood that I was setting out to write a book about the psychological effects of slavery uh, upon one boy, I, I don't think I could have written the book. I think it was, um, first of all, because it started as the, a book about the Tichborn case that seemed like much more approachable material but then obviously you couldn't look into Bogle's past without addressing the fact that he had been a slave um, but you know I, I, it was something that was much more organic it came about in the writing of it and um, I realized that what I really wanted to tell was a post-slavery story and a story about how people can begin to construct their lives after they've been through through great trauma and what that would look like and what would be available to this man in society um, looking as he does and you know this is both as a black man and as a disfigured man um, having to go into the world and and then it just seemed very natural uh, to be dealing with these these um, these traumas and and this kind of search to reconstruct a self so these almost PTSD like uh, symptoms and you know it was uh, 
a process of constructing his character, I guess, through his through his pain. Um, yeah, and of course, looming over all of this is this character of Titch, who is the um, brother of the slave uh, plantation owner who picks out Washington Black basically because he's the right size for ballast in his balloon, but right. but gives him the, this other life. Um, and another thing I really loved about this book was how. Um, we as the readers and how Washington are forced to constantly reevaluate Titch's role in Wash's life. Um, and it really complicates this trope of the white savior. It really complicates um, the motives of this man who is an abolitionist, but also, you know, does like has a profound effect that's not always good on, on Wash's life. So did you did you always see him as this really complex character? Um, I write in in many layers and many drafts, so he became more complicated the more deeply I I wrote him, I guess. But he, um, I mean, he always was this figure who had an area of blindness, um, who's very interested in the the uh, the big idea and. I wouldn't say so much a crusade, but who has a, a very strong moral idea of of uh, how he would like to proceed in the world, but but who's maybe blind to the particulars in his own life. Um, I think he behaves flippantly a lot of the time, and that that's what causes the the real damage. Is just that he, I don't think he's necessarily a malicious person. I don't I don't think that at all, and. Um, I think that's how he can continue to be a sympathetic character and we can still like him is that he doesn't necessarily intend to cause much pain. And when he keeps wanting to send Washington away, it's, you know, he really thinks in his mind that he's he's doing the boy a favor. He's not really thinking that this is somebody who is completely unprotected in the world and who has no skills uh, at, at that time to to create a life for himself. And so that Casting him off uh, under the guise of giving him freedom is not, um, you know, it's a it's a wonderful thing to grant somebody their freedom, <laughs> but uh, it's you know it's also a complicated thing for Washington, and he's not really looking at the repercussions of that. I love the way that um, one of the things that happens for Washington is that he discovers that he has this amazing artistic uh, gift. Mm -hmm. And he's a, he draws things with exquisite precision. And you have this contrast between Titch, like you say, you know, with the, his kind of good intentions, but his blind spots. Mm -hmm. And then Wash, who actually sees the world much more clearly, as is demonstrated by these drawings. Um, and, you know, your, your, your writing style is so visual. For me as a reader, I could... I, I was I was so there. <laughs> and I could see these drawings by Washington. Um... And uh, yeah, I wonder, did you, uh, do you draw? And did you see them in your eye as you kind of were going into the story? Or was that something that came to you kind of off the cuff of your imagination? Yeah, I, I used to, I used to draw and I used to paint. And uh, there was a period where I didn't know if I was going to be a visual artist or, or a writer. Um, and then I, the writing won out and which is, I think, great, because I don't think I was a very strong painter. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I really enjoyed it, and and uh, I've always been a very visual, visually-minded person. 
Um, and I guess in the book, the Washington realizing that he has these instinctive gifts for for drawing is is ultimately what saves his life. Um, one can't imagine um, Titch forming such a bond with him and then actually wanting to take him away without him having exhibited these gifts, which is kind of a a sad and and um, like terrifying thought that that it's just you know if if this hadn't if he hadn't had these gifts it, he probably would have lived a very much very much a different life than than uh, the one he's granted but um yeah i i think it is kind of a metaphor of you know he's his um his being able to see like his realizing that he has a very acute eye and can depict the world around him it's it's a kind of a metaphor for his awakening in the world of being able to see that he is see the people around him and, and appreciate uh, the nature around him because he's somebody who's grown up in a very beautiful part of the world but um, has he ever seen it uh, as seen its beauty or you know no this isn't something that's uh, so he's really waken you know awakening in the world and and coming into his own as uh, as a, a fully realized man and of course, this is also a great adventure story. Um, it, mm. it moves off the plantation in the West Indies to the Arctic, to Canada, to England, to Morocco. Um, it's globe hopping. You know, it does have resonance with those sort of picaresque novels set around this time of people traveling the world and having adventures. And mm. why did you want Wash to have that kind of globe hopping life? Yeah, so there. I guess there are a few reasons. Um, for me, the globe hopping, I mean, it's quite wonderful, and he's he's just filled with wonder and appreciation for the world, and he can't believe how vast it is. Uh, and these were journeys that people did take uh, at this time that you know were available to to people. So it's it's um, you know not entirely invented, but um, I think it speaks to his sense of rootlessness that he's constantly. Um, you know, traveling around the world and, and searching for his foothold and really searching for home and a sense of belonging. And he's not finding it. And so he's he's continually moving. And I think that by the time we've reached the end of the narrative, um, we don't know if he'll stop moving around the world, but we at least get a sense that he recognizes within himself this uh, this restlessness and that maybe this hasn't been the healthiest thing for him and, and something that he should evaluate. Um, but I also wanted to give the reader a sense of, of wonder and a sense of adventure um, to engender kind of the same wonder that Washington would be feeling as he's moving through these landscapes and that's everything feels unexpected and life feels, um, I guess it, it feels closed, but it also feels very, very open and, um, and just like a miracle. And I had been reading uh, Equiano's Travels, which is a, a slave narrative. It's a sort of a typical of a slave narrative in that you get, you know, this was my life and this was how I was captured and this is what became of things. But it was uh, astonishing um, because I didn't read it until I was maybe like on the eighth draft of Washington Black. But it was really amazing for me to pick it up and see how much was mirrored in his in his travels like mm. the Quiano um 
he was captured and uh, you know was on a plantation, and then he ended up um, on a naval ship and working on a naval ship, and this is how he earned his freedom. And then he he lived in England with the abolitionists. He he went to the far north. He was in in Greenland, like so. It was really really amazing, and I thought that it was just it was perfect for me because it was it had been lived. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and and speaking of having been lived, um, the wider theme of our show today, inspired by your novel, is the historical novel. Um, okay. And I think this book brings up a lot of great questions about what a historical novel has to do and should do. And I wonder, well, I first of all, I just wanted to ask you how much research you did um, about the places and the things that Washington did in his journeys and what, how important you thought that was to being able to write your novel. Yeah, I did an enormous amount of research. I began, I guess I begin every book by researching deeply and um, but this could go on indefinitely, like you could research for 10 years and never write. So at some point you have to force yourself to your desk and actually <laughs> do the writing. Um, but I, I guess I started my research um, on slavery in the Caribbean uh, and then came to focus on Barbados specifically because I found uh, some really interesting um, autobiographies, um, you know, in which people were had been researching their family past and then so they had very specific details of what that life looked like so that was fascinating and um and then I started writing the book and it was kind of later that I started researching the the science and the um the invention portions of the book but it's you know I'm researching almost right until the end of the writing process and even afterwards I guess when you're revising you're still finding new things and then putting them in the text the, the the invention and the science stuff that comes in, and I don't want to give too much away for our listeners, but there's this extraordinary contraption, the cloud cutter. Mm. Um, and there's a, a character who deals with uh, dead bodies who's kind of interested in the science of decomposition and things like that. These were elements that, to me, reading it, they read as though they were a lot of fun to write and explore. And I wonder if that's true. <laughs> yes, they, they were a lot of fun to write. It was... Uh, was great fun to, um, I guess, to invent these things and to to construct them, and I think that was important for me as a writer. It it provided uh, a balance to a lot of the darknesses in the book, um, which were very difficult to research and then very difficult to to write and reproduce on the page. Um, yeah, I, I think for me, the balance between dark and and light. Um, it's always been very important, I think, in all of my books, that there is, uh, you know, I think the underside of, of uh, like, I feel like, for instance, in Half-Blood Blues, um, there was a great deal of, of humor that had to work its way into the text for me, just to, to sort of, because I think when you're um, living in very difficult times, I think that's when you sort of most need humor and, and we tend to think of uh, grand scale uh, historical events as being moments of of unrelenting darkness and and um, I mean there was a, a lot of darkness but I'm sure that on a day-to-day -day basis people were still trying to to live and and I guess trying to to tell jokes and 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 
you know, the, the oppression of the events is still there, but I think daily life is, uh, people do always maybe um, move towards lightness or, or try and, and, and still incorporate lightness in, in their lives. Yeah, absolutely. And it comes about in the connections that they make. And that's something that in, in Washington Black comes through the solace that can be found in personal relationships under mm. the weight of, you know, overwhelming oppression and violence and brutality. Mm-hmm. Um, I wonder, I mean, I, I, I wanted to ask, as I was reading the book, I was thinking, you know, do you as, as a writer of historical fiction, does that like, do you think of yourself as a writer of historical fiction? And do you think of that as uh, carrying any particular responsibilities necessarily or would you rather just put it all in the bin and just be allowed to write whatever you want <laughs> oh that's a good question um i am coming more to think of myself as a writer of historical fiction it certainly if uh if you'd told talk to me when i was setting out to write i would never have thought that i would be somebody who'd write historical fiction i think even the term historical fiction kind of conjures up images of um you know book covers with people wearing you know bodices that it's like it's just like oh (laughs) (laughs) but um but no I you know I I am a I I guess I I am a historical novelist or I have been and um and you know I don't feel any particular responsibilities um emerging out of that like I don't feel obligated to tell uh, a certain story in a certain way I don't feel um hamstrung or or um you know responsibility to a certain community uh, these aren't things that that weigh on me uh if anything it's interesting for me to look at a historical moment and then to try and see what was odd about it or what was sort of underreported about it or who was standing on the margins and then to enter the story through that lens and and so that it's yeah it's it's just different it's a different way of seeing it yeah, and um, I mean, there are a number of ways in, in which this is a different way of seeing history. Partially, it's that this is the kind of character who generally is not given a voice in history. I mean, mm-hmm. simply because, you know, m- most slaves couldn't write and their lives weren't recorded besides as a fact and a figure. So it feels like this essential resurrection, actually, of of a voice. But also what I thought was really interesting was um, that you played around with history a bit. You know, I th- there are a lot of elements, uh, speaking of the cloud cutter, that are, I don't want to say magical realism, and, I, and I'm sure that, thro- that term has been thrown at you a lot, <laughs> in, but in this novel, which isn't, doesn't seem quite right, but sort of fantastical. Um, and I, I wonder if you thought of that when you were writing, that you were sort of stretching things. Yeah, I think I would disagree with the reading um, that, called it magic realist uh, or that called it um, I think somebody recently used the term fantasy which I I take umbrage with because it's not quite it's not right Um, I think everything that's in the novel was um, it was just the science of the time Uh, people were constructing or attempting to construct flying machines and um, actually the the very first hot air balloon was um, I, I think it was launched it was launched from Haiti sort of early 1800s or, or no maybe it was late 1700s and so that's that's an incredible thing to think about that the first one launched in the Americas was from from the Caribbean and uh, and 
you know, so this isn't something that's entirely outlandish, but it isn't something I understand that we usually see in, in slave narratives. Uh, so it's, but it was something that was happening, you know, at this time. Uh, and similarly, the, the, uh, the discovery of the natural world, like the studying of the natural world, the, the, um, the capturing of specimens, the, like all of this was, was, you know, were things that were going on at the time. And I think that it's just the juxtaposition of all of these things in one book is what gives it a kind of strangeness or, or a sense of magic. But that I would say it's very, they're very much rooted in history. Mm-hmm. I think it's, it's also partly to do with how, you know, so much of those elements in the book are, are things that we now take for granted in the modern world, like being able to fly. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't think of it as, as magical or exciting anymore because we get on airplanes all the time or, mm-hmm. you know, finding li- seeing lizards in the garden. It doesn't, but there's something about the wonder of these characters who are the pioneers of these things right. that to a modern reader f- almost feels fantastical. Yeah, and it could also be the fact that Washington is is waking up to these wonders. Like I think at some point, uh, Titch drops a lizard in his hand, and it's this blue lizard. And I'm sure he's seen lizards scuttling through the you know just the shadow of lizards, but he's never really picked one up and and held one in his hand and looked at it. And then there's the sense of uh, of wonder and and like it's this magical creature for him. But you're right; it's just a a quotidian everyday lizards you know for for most of us so I I think it's that perhaps it's the way it's treated in the book there's a sense of um of wonder uh, about these things yeah and that that might be where the the magical feeling comes through but yeah I, I wouldn't say it's magical realism it's not stretching the bounds of the possible or even really fiddling with history in that respect just so interesting that people have interpreted it in that way yeah yeah Maybe because the book is so visual, and it's it's um maybe it's the way it's written about yeah yeah. So finally, I just wanted to ask you a little bit more about this concept of freedom, which seems so essential to this book, and so um and is explored so with so much nuance um, and care. And I wonder if after writing the book, you felt any differently about what actual freedom might mean. And what it is? Yeah, that's a that's a very good question. Um, I think, yeah, I think before I started writing the book, I had uh, we all have a a general idea of of what slavery was and what it looked like, and um, but I don't think I had personally a very strong understanding of what that would have looked like on a on a day-to-day basis say on a plantation in Barbados like this isn't something where I, I had a very strong image um, and I really didn't think much I guess about about the lives of slaves after the institution of slavery had ended and um, obviously we speak much about reconstruction and the great migration in the states and but I, I don't think I understood how much those concepts or those um, those historical trends had remained abstract for me. And so for me to really look at, say, the apprenticeship period in the Caribbean 
um, after the end of slavery, which was essentially just an extension of slavery. So you could live in your hut, you know, rent free <laughs> and continue to work on the land that you'd always worked on for, you know, for very little money. And you were always in debt to to the person who owned the land. And it just was really, really terrible. But, I, you know, I didn't really think much about that period. And I wasn't so much thinking about the psychological effects that people would be carrying on into the world and and how that would affect their children and their children's children and this really researching this and, and writing it really made me stop and and think very deeply about these things and the idea that um you know people wouldn't have been you know they would have been free in their in their person in their bodies but um in terms of their emotions and their just the whole psychological realm that there would have been so much that you would have been carrying on and carrying forward into this new life. Thank you, Essie, so much for coming on. It's been a real pleasure. And uh, we both, I know, really, really enjoyed reading Washington Black. Um, so please check the book out if you have not read it already. And uh, we will be back in a bit to talk a little bit more about the theme. This is Larry Friction. I'm Carrie Plitt here back with Octavia Bright to talk about this month's theme, which is the historical novel. I'm really excited to talk about this theme, and I'm actually surprised we haven't done it before. Yeah, I know. Me too. Maybe because one. you thought you hated historical novels. <laughs> it's entirely possible. But I hope I've brought you around. <laughs> you have, actually. Also because I realized that quite a few of the novels I love are actually historical novels. So, yes. yeah. Yeah. We'll talk about that, won't we? We will. So... Why historical novels? Um, I mean, obviously, we shouldn't have to justify fiction, but there, I, I really do like history as told through fiction. And one of the reasons I love it is because it gives me a kind of lifeline to a time in the past. You know, for me, it's a much more enjoyable experience than sort of reading a history book about something. It sort of immerses me in a time and place in a way that maybe nonfiction can't always do. Yeah, well, it gives you an, a, a narrative in um, story form rather than in sort of a didactic kind of fact-based data yeah. way. That was can, a bad sentence, Carrie. I'm sorry. No, it wasn't. <laughs> it wasn't. Um, but it tells us how humans lived in a way yeah. that, that facts not can't always do. Um, Hilary Mantel, who loves to talk about historical fiction. She I mean, does. like every, <laughs> every article she's written. But she gave a, a really great series of Ruth lectures, which I would recommend in 2017. And um, one of the things she said was, if we want to meet the dead looking alive, we turn to art, which I think is such a wonderful thing. Yeah, it's absolutely true. But, you know, one of the things that I had, um, I think my distaste for historical novels was founded on the word history and my distaste for history and my kind of um, questioning of why people want to revisit times when things were even more unjust and even more violent and even more politically skewed. But I realized that I was getting too stuck in the idea that historical novels have to be true to history. Mm. And, you know, Orlando by Virginia Woolf is a historical novel. I would never categorize it as that. But of course, that's exactly what it is. Um, and, and what Hilary Mantel is talking about is kind of that 
uh, idea that you you can bring the past to life not necessarily in a completely true to facts way and still shed new light on it in ways that are relevant and interesting. Yeah, and this is a debate if anyone's you know studied English in college, you know that um, when you talk about historical novels, you do have to talk about truth and which kind of truth do we need? Um, a novelist always has to fill in those those blanks and those spaces and those ellipses that we will never really know how people felt um, inside their heads or what this individual was doing whose life wasn't recorded or or indeed, you know, what might have happened had something had something else happened in history. But that doesn't mean you're not getting at the truth of sort of human experience. No, absolutely. I'm going to pull out a little French quote, um, which is from an article that you sent me by Perry Anderson for the LRB. It's an incredibly dry article. Yes, it was very boring. Unbelievably boring. I can't believe I read it, actually. I'm kind of impressed with myself. Well, the reason that you read it and then I read it is because he does make some some good points. He just does it in an unbelievably, like, from within a paper bag kind of dry way. Um, But, 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 shade aside, Perry Anderson made some really good points um, about historical novels and he brought to my attention or reminded me this quote from Alexander Dumas or Alexandre Dumas which I'm mm. going to read in French mm. because Carrie I know Go how ahead. much you love it <laughs> on peut violer l'histoire à condition de lui faire des, beaux, des beaux enfants which means we can violate or one can violate history as long as you make beautiful children from it violate I mean also can mean rape so let's yeah. uh, leave that one to one side <laughs> kind of uncomfortable but uh, I think it's an interesting concept it's an interesting concept that like you know for a novelist to revisit history, first of all, is it always a violation because it's going to be entirely subjective and it's going to be imaginative and creative rather than true to facts? However, I would argue that history is always narrative anyway and that facts are, you know, more slippery than people like to believe they are. Um, but also, who gets to decide whether these children are beautiful or not? You know, yeah. that's also a subjective position to be taking. So. It's an interesting thing to think about. What do you think? Yeah. So, well, this has brought me back to my junior year in high school and, and a teacher I had called Kathy Thibodeau, who remains, I think, one of the most influential teachers I've ever had in my life. But she set us an essay, which was just the question, does history make good art? Which I thought was an, a pretty amazing thing. Um, we were writing on Henry the Fourth, Part One, I believe, by the Shakespeare play. But we also had to write about other things. Um And it made me think a lot about it. And I don't know if I've really answered that question then or indeed now. But the the only solid conclusion that I came to is that art about history is always an interpretation. Um, And it's it always becomes a sort of political means of conveying what you want to find in history. And we cannot escape from that. Um, You know, every great work of historical art, whether it be a novel or a painting or a song or whatever, is it is a view. Mm. And we cannot forget that when when we read or look at art about history. Um, Yeah. I also I do think I don't want to get too into like semiotics like the text means nothing oh come on you know, please, <laughs> please, 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 please. because I do I do think novels historical novels do have a certain responsibility within the parameters that they set for themselves so if an author says this is a realist historical novel they better have done their research and I'm quite frustrated when they haven't ah yes I can tell <laughs> <laughs> no I think that's fair I do think that's fair I, I do I do think that's fair because things Yes, things need to be engaging with what they purport to be. Um, But I also think that it's not, I think it's important not to distinguish too much between 
also an artistic impression of history and a his- historical impression of history because neither of these things are free from political yes. motivation yeah. and the things that get recorded so sure yeah you could you can say henry the eighth died on this like, exact day but the way in which that's recorded the inferences that are drawn from that even in historical texts i mean everyone everyone who did history at school remembers having to analyze the veracity of different source texts and look at them in the context of, of the culture within which they were pinned down and i think with historical novels you have two levels of political interest. One is the historical time period that is being revisited and the way that the author is engaging with those the, the um, historical texts available to them, which are real things. I'm making lots of air quotes that <laughs> yeah, no one that, can see. Carrie's <laughs> like, just watching me like, sort of wondering why you're in doing my... <laughs> that. I feel like the tone of your voice kind of conveys it. <laughs> I hope so. Um, but I then, love when people say quote unquote on the radio. I always think it's really dumb. So I'm glad you didn't do that. Go on. <laughs> <laughs> really dumb. Um, but then you also have to question uh, the author's motives for revisiting that particular time in the present moment. And, you know, I think it's important to think about that, the, the way that historical novels are resonating in the present moment. Do they Do they have to? Well, I think that they can't escape doing so um and you know what kind of attention does that bring about for us as readers and then also the fact that and this is a point that you made Carrie that blew my mind a tiny bit um because it's 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 very it's very straightforward but it's one that I think we don't think about that much which is that historical novels from the past were also historical novels yeah so like (laughs) I think it's easy when you read a book like War and Peace for example to just take it as a great narrative because you know that, you know, Tolstoy was writing many years ago and not understand that when Tolstoy wrote it, it was a grand historical novel. Yeah. And indeed, part of his whole project was engaging in the, you know, trying to write a new kind of historical fiction. That's exactly. it. That War and Peace is inseparable from the idea of writing about history. And exactly. Yet, and yet that's faded from view a bit. I think it has. And it certainly wasn't in my mind when I read it as a 17 or 18 year old. And I just read it as this extraordinary story. You know, I kind of wasn't I wasn't at all thinking about that. Yeah. Lots of things to respond to in that in that <laughs> comment. So um, first of all, on the question of whether historical novels have to reflect the present. Um, I I was reminded of the novelist Sarah Perry, who we had on the show actually to to discuss her first novel, which wasn't really a historical novel, but of course she went on to write The Essex Serpent, which was a huge success last year, is a historical novel. Um, She tweeted recently that it's ridiculous to argue about whether historical novels are relevant or not because all historical novels reflect the present. And I think that's probably true. And, And I think the best historical novels don't bang you over the head with their sort of modern resonances, but they resonate. Yeah. Um, and that's why we read them, because we want to fundamentally understand ourselves as we live now through well, the past. Exactly. And that that is another massive point, which is that, you know, we look to historical fiction to explore the foundation myths, you know, like humanity is obsessed with understanding itself anyway, right? I think that the project of kind of understanding the way that society functions and things is one of the core projects of most art in one form or another, whether it's through the lens of the personal or the more collective experience. Um, and, you know, going into like, for example, reading war literature, like First and Second World War literature is an, a, a way of understanding some of the very um, significant, often quite corrupt foundation myths of British 
uh, identity, uh, you know, just as an example, or slavery narratives as mm. looking, you know, and one like of the things, book. like Essie's book, exactly, that is like so important about revisiting those narratives again and again and again through the lens of different pers- different contemporary perspectives is that every time that happens, it sheds a new light on also how wrong-footed some of the historical mm. documentation mm. is, which is so important to acknowledge. And then you have the question of voice and the way that that, Again, the voice that an author employs can change throughout time once the book has been written. So I was thinking of Memoirs of a Geisha, which is a book that I read when I was at school that um, I really enjoyed. Everyone around me really enjoyed. It was a massive sensation I read it at in the time. Too, yeah, yeah, and it was is by an American man called Arthur Golden. I now look at that book completely differently. I look at it as racial ventri- ventriloquism. I look at it as like an act of kind of domination and imperialism I think it's very very fucking uncomfortable totally yeah but at at the time before I was aware of those kind of political implications I just read it as a story and and I think that's I think that's so important as well to understand that as readers as you grow in your political awareness as you grow in your independent mindedness as you approach texts your perspective on those texts is going to change just as your perspective on history should be changing too. Yeah. Well, and and our cultural um, perspective has shifted as well because we are talking much more now, even than we were 10 years ago, about who gets to tell stories Um, and things like cultural ventriloquism, um, cultural appropriation, all of those things. And, And it makes a lot of those things that we read without thinking about them a lot more uncomfortable. Um, and I, th- I think there is a flip. And, and these questions are always going to be present in historical fiction. I think as a sort of flip side, what's really wonderful about historical fiction is it is a way to bring to light voices and ideas that wouldn't have been heard otherwise. I think Essie's novel, Washington Black, is a great example of that. It's a, it's a novel that, you know, it, it is a novel about those geniuses who in the past would never have been heard from because of the color of their skin. Yeah. And suddenly we have this character who almost certainly did not exist in history. And a lot of the things that happened in the novel didn't exist in history. But it's making a very compelling and true point about um, people who are lost to us and people who can be found again through fiction. And I think and, and I feel very hopeful about that. Me too. Beautifully put. Me too, 100%. So let's talk about our favorite historical novels. Okay. What's yours? <laughs> <laughs> or do you want me to say mine? Say yours. You oh, go okay. first. Great. The one that I thought of immediately is um, The Name of the Rose by Umberto Eco, which I read as a very uh, sort of uh, permeable college student, like just interested in semiotics and text and it was sort of the perfect thing for me and I am sure most of our readers will have heard from this book as I was doing research about it I didn't realize this apparently it's one of the best-selling books ever published that's which I don't know if this is I read that on Wikipedia so like take that with a grain of salt but Umberto wrote that in himself (laughs) (laughs) but I just had no idea the sort of how popular this book was Anyway, um, for those of you who don't know it, it's a historical murder mystery set in an Italian monastery in the year 1327. Um, It was originally published in Italian in 1980 and has been translated all over the globe. And it is a very beautifully written, intelligent, pacey book. Um, And what's great about it is you can read it on multiple levels. You can just read it as a mystery. You can also read it. He's a semiotics professor and you can read it as a book about texts and how texts get translated and how texts are interpreted. And it becomes a novel sort of about its own writing, which, um, you know, I get off on <laughs> metafiction and books about their own creation. So I really loved this. But I mean, it's a, it's a 
book really about a lot of the questions that we've been asking on the show today, which is what are the limits of truth? How do you write a historical novel? My favorite historical fiction novels are those that engage with those questions while telling a really great story. And so if you haven't read it, I mean, it's just it's just a total delight. I'd really recommend it. It is. It's a fantastic book. And Umberto Eco, is, I, I love him and his work. I think he's a brilliant human. And I also agree completely with everything you just said about what historical fiction can do really interestingly and I think the one I'm about to recommend similarly like worries at the question of ethics and this kind of a thing um so it's called Life Class and it's by Pat Barker who um is probably more famous for her Regeneration trilogy which is also historical fiction which features figures like Siegfried Sassoon and is a, a first world war narrative this came afterwards um and it's kind of an extension of some of those themes but not of the characters it's a different world but it is a historical book set during the unfolding of the first world war so in 1914 um and instead of the follow following the soldiers at the front line it's about a group of art students at the Slade school in London and she uses the different parts of her protagonist one female one male to explore kind of what it means to take a position of detachment from the carnage of war um, and in the current political situation and what that means to choose to turn away from it perhaps um, and then also if you're thrown into it but with an artist's perspective rather than as a kind of hired gun um, and it feels very relevant right now actually mm. you know in this politically complex and frankly incredibly disappointing and incredibly violent time um what is the ethics of turning towards that and what it, what what does it mean to turn away is it ethically questionable or not is it self-preservation is it can it be seen as a philosophical standpoint to say i will not contribute to the discourse of violence i want to shine a light on other things in order to give people some respite um and anyway, the, the 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 female character ends up kind of disappearing into the fading grandeur of Bloomsbury life. And so there's this other portrait of London at that time that's painted, which is kind of great. Um, and it asks questions about also inevitably class privilege and agency, because to be able to turn away from carnage is also usually a gift of privilege. It's to have that choice. Mm. Um, not everybody does. Uh, so, yeah, I think it's great. I read it. I read it in my um, early 20s and haven't reread it. But it, it made a very vivid impression on me then. She's a wonderful writer. She's very evocative. Her language is very evocative. She paints a picture very well. Mm. I've never read anything by Pat Barker. I think you'd really, really like this book. Yeah. I it's think, got a lot of the I'll stuff that it. you like in it. Um, and the characters are very human and relatable. But yeah. Cool. And it's just cool to it's cool to revisit London at that time. Yeah, it made me want to go to art school. I mean, it was yeah. too late. I'd already done my degree, but I was like, <laughs> I want to go to the Slade. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, thank you for the recommendation. Maybe I'll actually read the book. Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> and, and we'll be back shortly with Essie to give our um, regular book recommendations. This is Literary Friction. I'm Carrie Plitt, back here with Octavia Bright and also Essie Adujin, who is um, back with us to give her book recommendation. So why don't, do you want to start, Octavia? Yeah, why not? Like, yeah. Let's shake <laughs> yeah, it up. Like, as we always <laughs> do. every time, Essie. <laughs> um, so I'm reading a really, really great book at the moment called Inferior by Angela Saini. And um, 
she's a journalist and she she decided to take a look at how science, the, in fact, the subheading is how science got women wrong and the new research that's rewriting the story. Okay. So she takes a look at, at all of the myths that we have kind of internalized culturally about the gender difference and sex-based difference. And she looks at biological determinism and she looks at all of the research that has been done this far and the way that it's been interpreted. And she she's a journalist. She takes a kind of anthropological approach. So she's very um, measured in the way that she weighs up the opposing perspectives. And, you know, she says in the introduction, this is quite difficult reading sometimes because you might hope that that her findings will burst all the myths wide open and sometimes they don't and that's kind of complicated um yeah but it's it's great and the way that she writes about it is so um you know intelligent and accessible and, and interesting it's a really great read it's very easy to read um and it's it's great to read something that's so digestible about something that can feel so impenetrable as well um and actually arm yourself with facts yeah it's great yeah. to have facts. I can be a bit crap with facts. <laughs> so this is making me feel a lot more kind of, yeah, solid in them. Um, but, you know, one of the things that I just wanted to flag up is that Charles Darwin was obviously, you know, a sexist and a racist because he comes from a time that was sexist and racist. Um, and he's also someone who, you know, the modern world of science is founded on a lot of his ideas. And just taking the time to kind of look at the fact that all of the institutions that we're evolving out of are so fundamentally flawed and have shaped our thinking in such fundamentally flawed ways and need revisiting and need reassessing. I think, um, you know, it's such an important message for us to all be kind of carrying with us anyway, but um, particularly when looking at gender difference and 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 biological determinism. So yeah, I really I recommend it very very highly. I haven't quite finished it yet, um, and I'm really interested to see if she will step beyond the binary and start thinking about gender neutrality as well. Um, I hope she does. She may not. I mean, you, one book can't do everything. <laughs> but anyway, that's mine. So yeah, read it, everyone. Inferior Angela Saini. Great. I've been meaning to read that for a while. So thanks for the push. Essie, could we have your recommendation, please? Yeah, so uh, I'll keep my recommendation short uh, because I'm still currently reading uh, the book. We uh, accept that on Literary Friction. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm reading Brian Burroughs' Days of Rage, uh, America's Radical Underground, the FBI, and the Forgotten Age of Revolutionary Violence. And it's just it's utterly fascinating. So it's looking at... Um, I guess J. Edgar Hoover and the FBI and their um, their plight to take down any kind of revolutionary group in the 1970s. And there was a like there were a lot of revolutionary groups in the in the 1970s. It, I'm really blown away. Um, things like the Black Liberation Army, um, obviously weather the Weather Underground, um, and it's fascinating to me to think that. Like the the planting of bombs and and you know, bombs were going off so regularly uh, all around the United States that it was like a very sort of everyday quotidian thing that um, you know that somebody that buildings would be evacuated. It was just like a normal part of life, and that you know bombs were constantly being found in you know trash cans and and there were huge explosions and this was just how how daily life was lived and and to me it's like I was just utterly fascinated by this because it's not something that I certainly was was aware of um and my parents who would have lived 
uh, or spent a little bit of their time in America during those years. You know, this is something that they readily discussed, but also to hear the, the workings of, of these groups and, and how they operated and, you know, what some of the basic principles were and how there was just a great um, sense of rage and disgust um, about things like social inequality, but especially racial inequality, and even a group like the Weather Underground, which was primarily a Caucasian uh, group of militants, uh, that this was central to their to their tenets and to their thinking was was the outrage over. Um, especially police brutality uh, against black citizens uh, in their country. And I'm learning a lot. It's utterly fascinating. Oh, mm-hmm. oh well, that sounds great. Mm-hmm. Um, that yeah. sounds amazing. Um, so I'm going to recommend a novel, okay. uh, which I just read called Less by Andrew Sean Greer. Um, and I was alerted to this because it won the Pulitzer Prize last year. So I can't say I like <laughs> discovered it on a dusty bookshelf. But, um, but I think it won for a good reason. It's a really, really wonderful novel and not one that I would have ha- like immediately picked up. Um, it's the story of a 40-something writer living in San Francisco who, when his former lover sends him a invitation to his wedding, he decides that he is going to accept every single invitation that he's received to different literary events all around the world so that he can be traveling for a year so as to avoid the wedding. It's also a comic novel. That's such a human desire. Yeah, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, no, but it, and like you've chosen exactly the right word because it's such a human book it's really funny but it's very sneakily profound um and that's I think what really sets it apart is is you read it and it's the sort of like rollicking adventure around the world not unlike well very unlike but (laughs) (laughs) but you know it's in in the same way it's about this person traveling all around the world and doing silly things and like falling off camels and you know, getting diseases and whatever, but, um, but, but, but and whatever. Getting um, diseases and whatever. But, <laughs> Amazing. Um, <laughs> but he's a beautiful writer of sentences and it's, and it tackles themes like, you know, genius and love and who deserves our attention as readers. And it's just this really human and caring novel, um, which, which by the end I was sort of flabbergasted by by how involved I was in it. So I would I I really liked it, and I think it's a, you know, speaking of living in sort of dark times, I feel like this is this is a great novel to read um, if you're feeling upset about the state of the world. Sign me up. It sounds amazing. Yeah. That's all the time we have for today. Thanks to our interviewee Essie Adujan, Josh Farmer at NTS, and to Eddie Knight for editing and music. Literary Friction is available as a podcast to download on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and to stream on ncs.live. You can check us out on Twitter and Instagram and you can also get in touch with us via email litfriction at gmail.com. We'll be back in a month. Until then, I'm Carrie Plitt with Octavia Bright and this is Literary Friction. Literary Friction.